Amen. Well, in our series through the Gospel of John, we've recently spent our time in the Upper Room Discourse, starting in chapter 13, and have moved through the High Priestly Prayer of chapter 17. And all of this, all of that section has been leading us up to the major turning point we come to this morning. Up till now, the Apostle John has shown us many pictures of the gospel. We've seen it in Jesus' foot washing in chapter 13. He's taught us about the empowerment for gospel living and the wonderful union that we have with Jesus, given to us through the gift of the Spirit in chapters 14 and 15. And then Jesus' teaching on Christian relationships, first to God and then to one another, and thirdly to the world, taught to us in chapter 16, and then in Jesus' prayer to the Father in chapter 17. And all of this has been preparation for us to be sent out into the world, no longer afraid of the world, no longer afraid of our own mistakes and our own imperfections, but always conquering through the kingly rule of Jesus' person and Jesus' work, regardless of how well we always live and minister in it, and regardless of the world's response. So when we get to chapter 18, which is where we are this morning, we're leaving the long teaching section of the last six chapters, and we are entering the darkest moment of redemption history. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus calls it the hour of the power of darkness. And it's the second time that darkness has slithered out of the shadows to strike at the representative of the human race. And like the first time, it is again taking place in a garden. Whether you are young in the Lord or whether you have been walking with him for many years, these are the questions that are being asked and then answered through the Holy Scripture this morning. First of all, in what ways has Jesus been disappointing to you? In what ways has Je- have you found yourself, have we found ourselves disappointed by Jesus? What ways do we find ourselves disappointed by him now? And secondly, and follow up to that, how have we responded to that disappointment? And how have, in our response to that disappointment, convinced ourselves that our response comes from good intentions, especially when that response is negative? And the answer to both of these questions we find in our text this morning is that no matter what it looks like to us, Jesus' judgment by the Father in our place, Jesus' rule over all things, including his enemies and ours, his suffering and ours, and his promise to lose not one of those that have been given to him by the Father. All of these things mean that he is always worthy of our trust, even when the powers of hell itself seem to be closing around us. This is the good news concerning the one who ruled even over his own judgment for us and his own suffering for us at the hands of sinful men. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley 
where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Father, even as we come to this very dark moment in redemption history, this very dark moment in the Gospels, we know and we believe that your light shines brighter, that the darkness has not overpowered it, it has not overcome it. And even here in this passage that is filled with so much darkness, we come knowing that you will show us so much light the light of your salvation for us, the light of your grace for us, despite our expectations, despite our disappointments, to overwhelm them with much better. And so we pray that by the Spirit, you will help us see these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, The story grew to the proportion of legend in the church that I grew up in just outside of Oklahoma City. As it has been told and retold and passed down, Patty was a much-loved woman and mother of five children who, along with her husband, were founding members of the church And she enjoyed offering to watch kids for many of the families of our church. They had considerable means, and her home had the reputation among the children of our church as being the closest thing to an amusement park that you could possibly go without buying an admission ticket. And so one summer day, Patty decided that she was going to take her kids and several others that were tagging along to the movies. She had heard that a great new movie had just come out about a brave little mouse who was ready to face all the challenges of being a mouse in a cat and dog world and would end up saving the world, I guess, at the end of the movie. So, everybody loads up in the SUV, they pile out in the parking lot, 
They buy their popcorn and their soda, and they enter the theater, and they file down into a row down front. The lights go down, the screen comes on, and it's at some point during the first few minutes of the film, the horror begins. Five and six-year-old children are watching wide-eyed and with their jaw dropping to the floor as an entire host of medieval characters are having their limbs and their heads taken off with swords and are being pierced with spears and lances and there's plenty of blood and screams to go around and Patty quickly jumps up with the understanding as to why her group of children are the only group of children in the theater and she quickly ushers them out of the theater and out into the lobby. And it's at that point that Patty decides right then and there that Braveheart is not a movie about a brave little mouse at all. Things that seem oftentimes one way on the surface all of a sudden are a lot different when we see them for what they truly are. And this was true for Jesus' identity and his ministry, and much of Jesus' teaching, and even for Jesus' arrest and his trials and his death. And it's even true for the location of our passage this morning. A garden. You expect only beauty and rest and peace and delightful sights and smells when you enter a well-tended garden. But that's not what we find here at all. The greatest war of human history is going to take place in a location of serenity. And like all the other stories in John's Gospel, we can see a broad, a universal, a redemption history-sized meaning to what's going on here. But at the same time, this meaning is being communicated through intimate and personal human relationships, helping us see application for ourselves. And that's how we're going to look at this passage this morning. We'll take a look first at the broader metaphors and the meanings in this passage for our redemption. But secondly, we're also going to look at a few points of personal application for us as the characters of the story jump out at us. First of all, as the 5th century church father, Cyril of Alexandria, and many other theologians throughout history have noted, there is no coincidence at all that Jesus' arrest is taking place in a garden. Throughout the history of the Bible, the most climactic and the most significant moments in all of human history, they take place in a garden. And the setup in John chapter 18 should be echoing in our minds with the details of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Just as the Genesis garden was a place of fellowship where God would meet with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, So John tells us in verse 2 that Jesus, the divine son, often met in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. In the first garden, Satan enters into the scene through a crafty serpent. And now Satan is back in this garden again through the person of Judas, once again playing the pretender, once again proving that the worst kind of evil is not open rebellion, but calculated evil, masquerading as smiles and kisses and promises that you can trust and friendship. 
And in what they hope to be a great reversal of the first garden, Satan and fallen man join forces and make a pact to judge the judge. And the cackles of evil things can be heard in the shadows. And what they must have thought was going to be the irony of ironies. As the second Adam is going to be betrayed by a pretend friend. Just like the first. But this satanic hope for a great reversal, it's just an illusion. It's just an illusion. John paints this picture in such a way that we're left with no mistake about who's really running the show. Just as in the first garden, so now in the second, God is the one who asks the first question. Not, Adam, where are you? What have you done? But in verse 4, Jesus asks the mob, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? Do you even really know? Do you even possibly fathom who it is that's standing here before you as you come to me with sticks and metal? And in this universe-shaking confrontation, we see John emphasizing a theme that has been sh- he's been shouting at us throughout his whole gospel. Jesus' divinity, his deity. Jesus' rule is so apparent, even here, At his arrest, Jesus is seen as the supreme king, the supreme ruler, as he is confronted with the highest powers in the world. The greatest political power of Rome in the form of Governor Pilate's soldiers. The greatest religious power of Israelite Judaism represented by Annas and Caiaphas and the temple police that they send. The powerful social force of the Passover celebrators the old covenant people of God as they've come to Jerusalem for Passover. And behind them all, on this weekend, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, pulling his strings like the famous picture of the unseen puppeteer on the cover of the movie Godfather. But throughout this arrest scene, John presents the story as a joke on these powers. By telling us in verse 2 that Judas knew of the place where Jesus would be, John is not praising Judas' cunning. Rather, he's pulling back the curtain and telling us that Jesus purposefully chose this place, not in order to hide, not in order to make it more difficult to be arrested, but to make it easier. As verse 4 says, Jesus knows all That is about to come upon him. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus is presented as the divine ruler over all things, whose rule is in no way diminished by his coming death, but instead his suffering and his death are coming precisely because he's the ruler. In other words, his suffering has come upon him because that's how he and the Father and the Spirit have planned it from the beginning. Already in chapter 1, we hear John the Baptist cry that Jesus is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. 
In chapter 2, Jesus challenges the Pharisees to destroy his body, the temple, and that he will raise it up again. In chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus promises that he, like the bronze serpent in the book of Numbers, must be lifted up on the cross for the salvation of those who believe. Jesus promises to give his own flesh like bread for the life of the world in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 10, Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then he qualifies it by saying that no one has the power to take his life from him, but that he lays it down of his own free will. In chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, becomes an unknowing prophet by declaring it necessary and better for one man to die on behalf of the people. And in John 12, Jesus speaks of himself as the grain of wheat that falls and dies and is buried in the ground in order to produce much fruit. And we could just keep going. But the point is that Jesus' rule, even over his own arrest and his own humiliation and suffering, makes a mockery of the pretend authority and power of Satan's minions. Many of us have read or watched the scene in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan the lion approaches the great stone table in the middle of the night. This table is surrounded by witches and goblins and demons and terrifying animals and creatures, all in the service of the white witch. And the white witch puts on an air of confidence and authority and commands her servants to bind Aslan. But she doesn't even dare to command it until the lion's already lying down on the ground. Aslan had already chosen to leave the glory and the safety of his kingly court and to walk through the dark woods without his army and then lie down before his enemies without a fight. And it only shows the foolishness of his enemies that they would think that ropes and cords could give them any kind of an advantage apart from the lion's will. And that's how we're to understand the lanterns and the torches and the, and the weapons of the mob in verse 3. They represent ignorance and the willful hardness of heart that utterly fails to recognize who it is that stands before them because they don't want to. Jesus proclaims to them twice, verses 5 and 8, the divine identity, the I am that we first hear from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 before Moses. The first time he does it, the mob falls down to the ground. Why? Because throughout Scripture, the only possible response of human beings in the presence of revealed deity is to fall down to the ground. We see this in many places in the Old Testament. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 44, just a couple of places. In Isaiah 11, the promised root of Jesse, the promised Messiah, will strike down his enemies with the word of his mouth. Even when Jesus pulls back the mask, so to speak, for a brief moment, proving himself to be who he really is without a doubt, 
Deaf ears remain deaf and stony hearts remain stone. They pick themselves up and they dust themselves off and they're all ready to break themselves on the rock in front of them if Jesus hadn't given himself over to them instead. Jesus gives himself up because if he didn't, he could not be apprehended. The whole human race is arrayed against him. We see Rome representing all the Gentiles standing before him, along with the Jewish people of God, people who are often sworn enemies in Scripture, but on this night are united in a common purpose to judge the judge. But even here in this scene that John paints for us, Christians are not let off the hook. The church is not let off the hook. If you're like me, you have probably seen many reenactments depicting the events of Jesus' Passion Week. I've seen these reenactments many times in the form of Sunday morning dramas around Easter or youth group tours to very elaborate stage scenes with huge props and peace settings made to give you the feel for first century Jerusalem while the actors playing Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees act out their roles. And then, of course, there are the many movies and the films like The Passion of Christ to tell the story. And for all that can be said either for or against these reenactments, sometimes the very medium of communication chosen by these methods can leave us watching in a detached, objective, kind of on the outside, looking in sort of way. And we can sometimes feel like we're watching what the big bad world did to our Jesus as we're moved to tears by their cruelty and his compassion. But the gospel writers don't present it that way. They invite us into the garden with Jesus. John tells us twice in the first two verses that Jesus entered the garden with his disciples. And we're brought face to face, not just with the world, but with ourselves. We see one who has been a confessing Christ follower and chosen disciple as he shows his true traitorous colors in the dark of the garden. Another confessing Christ follower will try to be the superhero, only to fail miserably and to to deny Jesus only a couple of hours from now. And through the actions of these two characters, we're confronted as Christ followers with the truth about ourselves. Both of these men do what they do because they are deeply disappointed in Jesus. Both of these men do what they do because like Adam and Eve in the first garden, in their minds, Jesus has held out on them. Jesus has not been fair to them, and Jesus has not been willing to meet their expectations. Judas was the money keeper, the group treasurer, who may have had dreams of riding the coattails of this powerful man all the way to the top someday, but instead this guy gives money away to the poor. And he lets would-be donors pour out expensive perfume costing a year's wage out on his feet. 
And so one day Judas decides that he could do a good thing for Israel and achieve his goals for wealth all in one fell swoop. With what he believed to be the best of intentions, Judas decided to betray this pretender, this promise breaker to the authorities and make a lot of silver in the process. Peter, disappointed in Jesus' weakness and unwillingness to defend, his, defend himself from his enemies, decides that he's going to do it for him. Just as it was true for Judas, so also in Peter we see someone who is militantly committed, armed with what he believes to be the best of intentions, running at a sprint down a road that seems to be, without a question, the best way. He's ready to risk his very life and to shed blood for his master. He's eager to defend his own reputation against Jesus' earlier prophecy that he would deny Jesus. He's ready to do it at any cost. Peter's ready to play power politics. He's ready to assert dominance the old-fashioned way, the only way the world has understood dominance since Cain and Abel. But Jesus didn't need to fight for dominance. He already had it. And Peter's use of the sword in defense of Jesus in this instance is as foolish and it's as useless as the weapons brought by the soldiers to arrest him. Both of these men, one an ex-Christ follower turned traitor and the other a true Christ follower about to deny him with his mouth. Both of these men are doing what seems to be perfectly rational and reasonable and right in his own eyes. A lot of the world and too many Christians think that sin is basically good people purposefully going out of their way to take on bad motives in order to carry out sinful actions. But the truth is that sin is hopelessly lost people taking on motives that seem perfectly harmless in their eyes, the best of intentions to carry out sinful actions. Adam and Eve ate the fruit with the best of intentions. The Pharisees killed Jesus with the best of intentions. Judas betrays him with the best of intentions and Peter seeks to kill for him and then deny him all with the best of intentions. For, because for all of these people, their idea of perfect was not met. They wanted better with what seemed to them the best of intentions and they made a bad trade in the process. Because the bad news is we're too lost to know what a good intention is. And we're too lost to change that about ourselves by ourselves. And so this morning, I don't want to say it tritely and I don't want to say it callously hopefully just truthfully. But if you're here this morning and you're disappointed with Jesus, you're in good company. He's been disappointing people for a very long time. 
from the very beginning of his ministry, actually. And the ones that seem to take it the hardest are the ones closest to him. The ones who have walked with him and sacrificed for him and maybe given up many desires and dreams for him or lost and suffered a lot for him. And you begin to have a long string of connected days and weeks and months or maybe years when you say to yourself in secret or maybe you say to Jesus and his people in moments of honesty, you know what? I really thought you'd have better for me at this point. I really thought you were going to do better for me at this moment. After all of this, I really was expecting something better. Because you understand, this is what Judas and Peter, this is what they're thinking. This was the process they had gone down. And with the best of intentions in their eyes, they're setting out to make it right. I've spoken with several of you who have watched the recent miniseries on the History Channel called The Hatfields and McCoys. It's an excellent retelling of the legendary family feud, maybe the most epic family feud in American history that takes place in the late 19th century, immediately following the Civil War. It goes on for decades. And there are some redemptive elements towards the end but as you would expect, the emphasis on the, in the series is on the unending and the tragic nature of revenge. It just never seems to stop. The killing of one family member by the Hatfields results in a similar response from the McCoys, and it just keeps going on. In the words of the band Coldplay, it's just a cycle of recycled revenge that plays itself out for years. And one of the most powerful scenes takes place towards the end when Randall McCoy, the patriarch and the head of his family, falls to his knees in a jailhouse in tears, realizing how his thirst for revenge has cost him scores of dead family members. And he screams out, Where is my justice? Where is it? And the disappointment and the anguish, they're written on his face. Because throughout the story, Randall has pursued justice and revenge, invoking God's name and God's cause and God's word, the Bible, throughout the series. He's fully convinced all along that his intentions are honorable and they're right. And like Randall McCoy and Judas and Peter... We can be so disappointed with Jesus until His Spirit enables us to come to the point of realizing that the real problem is us. The real problem is our expectations. Judas and Peter knew Jesus too little and they expected too little. And we're unsatisfied with Jesus' infinitely greater plans and infinitely greater mission. 
But the point of this passage is not, okay, Christian, do you have what it takes to stand strong when all hell breaks loose and Satan comes at you? This passage isn't asking if you have what it takes to face the darkness and to grit your teeth and to clench your jaw and to play the theme song of Rocky in your mind while you pump up your commitment level. That's not what the passage is saying. Rather, in this passage, a significant break is being made. And while in the upper room discourse of chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is inviting us into his work, work that he will do through us by his union with us, when we get to chapter 18, a dramatic turn is being made. And the abject terror of the disciples in the face of all the forces of darkness descending on one haunted location is telling us something. Jesus is now alone, doing what only he can do alone. And like Aslan says to Susan and Lucy in the story, we're invited into the garden, but only so far. In our union with Christ, we share in the benefits of his victory, but we don't go along for this ride. Even the worst of Christian suffering throughout the centuries is an imperfect type. It's a picture. It's a child's scribbling of what the Savior alone experienced beginning at this point on this night. And this point is made abundantly clear as we see Jesus saving his people, acting on their behalf, demonstrating his rule over his own suffering and our salvation at the same time, even here. Verses 8 and 9 have Jesus repeating his claim to be the great I am the God of Israelite salvation in Exodus. And then he does for his disciples exactly what God does for his people in Egypt. He commands that the worldly demonic powers let them go. And just like the many thousands of lambs that gave their blood on the night of the Passover so that the people of God could escape the judgment of God's angel of death, so now the Lamb of God, proclaimed by John the Baptist, this all-sufficient, single and alone Lamb remains in the garden to give His blood, to set His people free from judgment once for all. This is Jesus' much greater mission, His much greater goal, which Judas and Peter couldn't see yet. A goal which far exceeded their feeble expectations. The substitutionary sacrifice Jesus is going to undergo in order to justify and then sanctify a new people for himself. He wasn't content with greatest prophet or even king of Israel or even the overthrow of Rome. He wanted the whole creation back, beginning with us. And so after commanding that the soldiers let his people go, he tells Peter to put away his sword and says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
Old Testament passages like Psalm 75 and Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25, these passages repeatedly picture God's wrath as a full cup of terrible wine forced down his enemies' throats, causing them to stagger about in a stupor. This is the Old Testament picture of it. And in his rebuke of Peter's anger and Peter's militancy, Jesus tells Peter that it is this very cup having been prepared from the foundation of the world that he is going to drink. And he would drink it in his trials and he would drink it in the brutal beatings and in his lonely crucifixion and in his burial so that his second to last words from the cross would be, I thirst for he had drunk this cup of wrath to the full and none was left leading to his final words from the cross recorded in John, it's finished. And neither Judas's demonically good intention betrayal nor Peter's demonically good intention swordplay was going to stop what the divine trinity had decided must be. This second garden had been in the planning for some time. And this time, the second, gar- the second Adam was going to be judged for the sins of the first and cast out of the garden and then cast from the temple and out of the city in order to create a new temple and a new city and return his people to a new and better garden, even better than the first. So Judas, you tool in Satan's hand, do your worst, and you're only going to bring destruction upon your master's head. And Peter, you misdirected disciple, put your sword down. Jesus has set you free, and his plans for you are not disappointing. Amen.